Would you pray with me? Grant, Lord God, that my message, my speech, might not be in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of your spirit and of your power. That our faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What is wonderful to have everyone gathered together as we are this evening. It is wonderful to gather at the call of our bishop for this synod in 2016. The theme for this synod, as you know, is taken straight from the lips of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, as we see this great introduction to the gospel account that Mark gives, as Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That kingdom that Jesus announced, in the same way that his cousin John had, had spoken about the kingdom being at hand, that kingdom is where the rule and the will of God is made manifest. Wherever that is, is enacted in this life, the kingdom of God appears. And so Jesus, standing on the stage of human history, is the manifestation of the kingdom. Completely, in himself, the rule and the will of God. The perfect embodiment of his rule and his will. We see it so clearly as we, as we heard this story in Mark chapter 2. And as we, we think about what happened as this paralytic was brought to Jesus. Well, I'll tell you what happened if you didn't catch it. The kingdom broke out right there. Church just broke out in the house where Jesus was. Things started to happen. Did you catch it? When this paralytic is dropped down in front of Jesus, Jesus starts by forgiving his sin. Your sins are forgiven. What an incredible proclamation Jesus makes because he stands there and says something that only God has the authority to do. And so there Jesus, as the manifest will of God, the kingdom at hand, declares something that only God can say. It gets better than that. Because here you also see the heart of Jesus. You see, the common understanding or misunderstanding of the day was that if, if you've got something that's happened to you, you're sick, you're a paralytic, well, you had it coming to you. I mean, you've obviously done something terrible that God would visit this on you. It's sin that brings any difficulty into somebody's life. And so Jesus, in a masterful stroke, he doesn't start with his legs, he starts with his heart. And he says, your sins are forgiven. You see, what Jesus was doing in one fell stroke as he manifests the kingdom, and he says, let's remove all doubt. Your condition, though related to the sin of humanity, is not the result of a particular sin in your life. And so I will deal with the sin first, and you will see that you are still paralyzed. 
and then we'll deal with that in a moment. Well, the kingdom just starts breaking out even more because then there are those who are off on the sides. They've got their arms folded like they typically did, looking at Jesus saying, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus displays the prophetic ministry he has as the kingdom shows up again, and he knows their thoughts. So he challenges them. Why are you saying this to yourself? Which is easier, to say to this guy, rise, take up your mat, and walk, or to, or to say your sins are forgiven? That's a trick question, by the way. Which is easier? Well, I know one is harder to do, but one's easier to say. You can say your sins are forgiven. Where's the proof? But you say, rise, take up your mat, and walk. Let's see it. Oh, sure, it's harder to forgive sin, but... But Jesus is basically saying, you give me the harder one, then you have to give me the easier one. You now Jesus displays the power of the kingdom where a sickness is dealt with. You realize when we pray that prayer that Jesus gave his disciples, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're saying is bring all of the reality of what is true in heaven and make it manifest in this life experience we have right now. There's no sickness. There's no paralysis in heaven. And so when he does what he does, he is bringing the kingdom at hand in this man's life. He is forgiven and now he's healed. And the scoffers are rebuked and the people marvel. I tell you, the kingdom of God was at hand and it was manifested that day in that house. But, but here's what I want us to do tonight. I want us to take a step before that, before this kingdom being manifest the way it is. Because if in fact it's true that the greatest manifestation of the kingdom is in Jesus himself, then we hear about this particular time when there is a man who is brought to this manifestation of the kingdom. There was this man who was paralyzed who had people who cared enough about him to bring him into the presence of Jesus. How this man found himself in the presence of Jesus in the, in the midst of this kingdom breakthrough. That's what I want us to pay attention to for a bit this evening. You see, he had people who were passionate about bringing him, their friend, to Jesus, to be near him who might be able to make a difference in, in this man's life. There were these people truly passionate to bring this friend and to do whatever it would take to get this friend into the presence of Jesus because wherever Jesus is, the kingdom of God is manifest. They were passionate about getting this friend to Jesus, which leads me to the question for us tonight. They were passionate about getting their friend to Jesus. Are we passionate about bringing people to Jesus? Are we passionate about bringing people into the kingdom of God? It's not, do we think it's a good idea? I mean, raise your hand if you think it's a bad idea, because we need to deal with that before we go further. No, I mean, we get it. It makes sense. Sure, we want people to come to Jesus. That's why God invented Billy Graham, we think sometimes. No. And we see it in this story tonight. Here's what I'd like to do just in the, the time I've got left. I want us to look at four things, four things that the first part of this story tells us about what it takes to have a passion for bringing someone into the presence 
of Jesus, who is the manifestation of the kingdom of God, the chief manifestation of the kingdom of God. So if you've got a Bible, I hope you do, turn to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to pick up with this story. In fact, we see in in verses 1 and 2 that Mark sets the scene in Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee. Word's gotten out about Jesus by this point, that Jesus is there. And by now, Jesus has been extremely busy. In chapter 1 of Mark, Mark records his baptism, his temptation, the beginning of his ministry of proclamation, how he called the disciples to himself. Then he started his remarkable teaching ministry, healing, casting out demons. People were coming from everywhere, Mark tells us. And there he was now in this house, so crowded that people were clogging the doorway and spilling outside. Then look at verse 3. And they came. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now do the math on that. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. If you you do the math of that sentence, there's obviously more than four. There's a crowd. There's a group of people. There's a community that is bringing this man to Jesus. We have no idea how long the man was paralyzed. What we do know is that somebody cared. Somebody cared. And it wasn't just that they cared. They cared enough to act. They cared enough to do something about it. Now caring, don't get me wrong, I don't want to denigrate caring. Caring's important. Caring's crucial. But even more important is caring enough to act. The Beloved Apostle John writes this in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, if you're going to have a passion for bringing people to Jesus, you have to care. And you have to care enough to act. Oh, we're going to hear tomorrow some great manifestations of the kingdom. There are going to be three different ministries, among others, that we'll share about around tables where the kingdom is breaking in and people are encountering Jesus. And you'll see in each one that it's happening because people don't just care. They care enough to act. Oh, this is a hard lesson. Why, I'd had most of this all written. I was all ready. It was in the book and ready to be preached. And then God got, well, he started to get really, really, how do I put it? He just started meddling. (laughs) You need to understand that in the city of Houston, like so many cities, as you drive and you get to a major intersection, When there is great prosperity, there's going to be great adversity and great poverty. And so in almost every major intersection in Houston, especially where we live, you're going to find somebody on the median at the point of every single intersection. And there typically is a handmade sign in his his hands or in her hands saying, I'm hungry, or I'm a vet and I have nothing and no benefits, or can you help? And Teresa and I, my wife, we've driven by people so many times. And in that 
as we drive by, you know, the, you know the problem it creates in your heart. Do I help? Do I not? Am I giving him money and he's going to go drink it? Is this a helpful thing I can do? I know what I can do. I'm going to give money to ministries that take care of people who stand at the median, at the intersections. And we do. It's just that the need's still there. And we keep driving by them. So Teresa and I came up with a plan. We, we heard that one of the greatest needs of people who live on the streets is, is not just food, but they get thirsty, especially in Houston in the summer. And so we went and bought a big case of water, and we put it in our car. And see, we had this route where we'd always see the same people almost every single time. We thought, well, now what we're going to do is we're going to give them water. Oh, we did one better than that. We said, not only are we going to give them water, Teresa went and got these bars, these nutrition bars, chocolate chip nutrition bars. That's good. And so we were going to give, though. We said, okay, well, that's what we'll do. We'll just always, we won't worry about, are you gonna, what are you going to do? Here, you just take this, be nourished by it. And the day we put them in the car, I kid you not, all of the people who used to stand on the median at the intersections and the major intersections of Houston, they were gone. It was day after day after day. And I would say to Teresa, Did you, were you able to give out any water? She said, I didn't see a soul. And she said, did you give out any of that? I didn't see anybody. And say, I've got a route, and it's a long route I go to get to work every day. And usually there were people there, but there were never people there. For the better part of the summer, I carried the water in my car. In fact, it was getting so hot that I would take it into the office every day and then leave it in my office to cool off again, then put it in the car. And then sometimes I would forget. And you know what would happen when I would forget? There would be someone standing at the median intersection. It got to the place where we just thought, Lord, what's the use? And I even was feeling that here recently. I said, Lord, you know, why is it? I can't see anybody on the route I take, and I take the same route every day, Lord, and why can't there be people? There usually are people, and I know there would be an opportunity to help people because this is the route I take, and I want to make a difference, and I want to care. You know what the Lord said to me? Change your route. It just came up in a quiet time one morning. You can get to the office by a different way. But Lord, this is the quickest way. Change your route. Now, I didn't hear the audible voice of God, but that thought just rose up in me. Change your route. <laughs> so today, I decided as I was going to go to the gym early in the morning, I would change that route. And in fact, instead of going straight to the gym, I went straight down the street, did a U-turn, and came to a place where, not on my usual route, we had seen people in need, and sure enough, there was somebody. I thought, yes, this is going to work this time. The problem was, I was in a left-turn lane, there were five cars in front of me, three behind me, and so when the green light came, even though I would kind of wave, like, I have something over here... He didn't come down. He stayed up at the top of the median. I thought, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to walk down toward the cars. That's what everybody does. But he didn't do it. He just stood there. And so when it came time for us to move, I thought, I can't get this to you fast enough. And so with the cars behind me, I thought, if I stop, they're running into the back of me. And so I had to go through the intersection with his water and his candy right there by me. I mean, his Nutri-Grain bar right by me. And so I thought, well, Lord, I guess here's what I can do. I'll go to the gym, and then when I finish, I can come back. And again, the Lord says, he won't be there. 
And as I'm driving, I promise you, I'm having this battle with God. And I thought, Lord, are you kidding? Make a U-turn. And so I made a U-turn, came back to the intersection, turned right, turned into the shopping center opposite, came back on the same street to get back in the same lane that I'd had five cars in front of me and five cars behind me, and it was the same math in front of me. Five more cars had gotten in front. I thought, this ain't going to work, Lord. And so this time, there were no cars behind me. And I saw the cars leave. And usually at that intersection, you've got about eight cars that are going to make it. Only five were in front of me. I just crept slowly to the intersection. And the guy at the head of the intersection was looking like, what's up with this? And then as I got to that very head of the intersection, the light turned yellow. Then it turned red. There were no cars behind me. I rolled down my window. And I said, would you like something to eat? Would you like something to drink? And he just shook his head and said, I would love something to eat. You see, he had a sign that said, I just need some help. And me and my cynicism always wondered, would you really take it and need it? I mean, is that really what you want? And he took it, and as he did, the Lord compelled me to say, hey, what's your name? He said, Rajay. I said, my name's Terrell. He said, oh, God bless you, Terrell, for this. And I laughed. I said to him, well, and bless my wife, because it really was her idea. <laughs> and I said, God bless you, really. And I'm so sorry that things are going so hard for you. And he began to explain his circumstance. Then the light turned green. He turned, he saw it, he said, bye. And as I drove away, God dispelled the last drop of my cynicism when I saw him walk across the intersection, go to a wall, put down the box that held all of the Nutribars, rip it open and cram it in his mouth because he was, in fact, so hungry. Do we care enough to act? If we're going to be passionate about bringing people to Jesus. It's good to care, but we have to care enough to act. And we're going to be hearing about that tomorrow. If we want to bring people to Jesus, we have to see it as a matter of life and death. Now, whenever I get a chance to stand up in front of a diocesan group, I'm going to make this point because I'm going to make this point until I really believe we've got it. You have to see it as a matter of life and death. We get so confused about this in the Christian culture today. Most of us, when we think about the Bible, we see it as a big rule book. We think that the summary of the Christian faith, much less the Bible, is it's about good and bad and right and wrong and do and don't and ought and should, right? We reduce it to mere moralism. But that's not what this book is about. That's not what Christianity is about at its core. It's not good, bad, do, don't, right, wrong. It involves those things, but that's not what it's about. No wonder the world shies away from us. Because we say that's what it's all about. And it's not. 
I mean, if we just read the book closely enough, we can see it's not. You remember in the book of Genesis, God named two trees. Of all the trees that were there, of all the things that Adam and Eve could have eaten from, there were two that were named. One was the tree of life, and if they ate of it, they would live. No, tree of life, and you will live. Okay, we need some coffee, I think, Bishop. Was what... <laughs> then there was another tree. And it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God was so specific. Eat of it and you will, okay, you already had this answer, you will die. Got it? Fascinating. Tree of knowledge of good and evil, tree of life. Right there in the very beginning. Not the, the tree of bad morals. You get it. Fast forward, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Moses sets the renewed covenant in front of them, full of do's and don'ts. But remember how he summarizes it? He says, I have set before you this day life and death. Not good morals and bad morals. Life and death. Choose life. Fast forward to Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to what? Bad moral behavior. No. Destruction. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to what? Good ethics? No. Life. John 14, verse 6. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. John 10.10, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. If we see Christianity, if we see discipleship, if we see relationship with God merely in terms of appearance and behavior, we realize there are so many people will never be motivated to bring to Christ. Why? Because they appear to be fine. In fact, they actually... A little nicer than we are. Their behavior exceeds ours. Who am I to say that they're not good moral people? And am I morally any better? So who am I to foist my religious stuff on them? But you see, that's not the point. It's about life and death and the one in whom they're found. Seeing people as either connected to Christ who is life or not, and to not be connected to Christ is death. You have to see it as a matter of life and death. Back in February, on the 17th of February, in fact, I suffered a heart attack, and it was a big one. Later, we would learn that I was actually minutes from death. It all started with me just feeling uncomfortable. I just didn't feel right. We were, Teresa and I were taking a walk. We went back into the house at the beach where we were staying, and, and I said, I'm just going to lie on the bed and try to get comfortable. And I got on my back, got on my side, got on my front, just trying to get comfortable. And, and Teresa was beginning to be concerned as she realized that something really must be wrong. But I was not letting on to what I was beginning to think it was because I didn't want to scare her. But the more we looked at the symptoms, we realized something was up. Then I said, let's go see if there's baby aspirin in the house somewhere that I could take something to see. And pretty soon we realized we just have to get to a hospital. And at some point on that drive, as she put me in the car to take me to the hospital, something changed from her seeing my situation as being a matter of, I'm just a little uncomfortable, to I am about to die. The urgency, the passion, 
of my wife behind the wheel of the car. Flashers went on. The lights went on. The horn started honking. She, though the windows were down, was screaming at the people in front of her, get out of the way, waving, saying, get out of the way, as she drove as fast as she could to take me to the hospital. Why? Because it was no longer about me being comfortable. It was about life and death. Let's take this to another level. Is that how you see it about yourself? In your relationship with Jesus. Well, let's not talk about it being somebody else right now. Let's talk about our own lives, how we see our, our own standing. Do you think that you would perish without knowing Christ as you do today? Are you convinced of it? Or is he more like icing on the cake? The cake's fine. The icing just makes it all sweeter. No. He's not a spiritual add-on to an otherwise fine life. It's life and death. That's why we read what we read in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why? Because it's about life and death. I tell you, if we don't see it that way, if we don't understand what the Scriptures teach so blatantly, then we'll forever struggle to have an urgency here. We'll struggle to have a passion for bringing people into the presence of Christ Himself. You have to see it as a matter of life and death. Real quickly, just two others. We have to be willing to challenge the conventions of men in order to reach the presence of Christ. You see the story. It's wonderful. These people get there carrying their friend on this pallet, and they realize that the door's all clogged up. They can't get into Jesus if they tried. No one's going to give them a seat. Come back another day. And it would have been so easy for them to say, you know, Jesus, he hangs out in Capernaum a lot, we hear. Let's just wait until a day when we can get in a little more closely. But they wanted their friend to come to Christ. And they had a passion for bringing him to Christ. How many of you know there are always going to be obstacles to bringing people to Jesus? I mean, I laugh at the obstacles I've found in just getting people to show up at church. I mean, people can get so creative. Things like, my dog died, or I had to work late, or I got sick, or I broke up with my boyfriend, or my shoes didn't fit. I heard that one day. They grew since Sunday? Your feet? Jesus said the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealings with their own generation than are the sons of light. You see, you have to push through, try something new, persevere, get creative, challenge old ways that don't work anymore. See, the world knows this better than we do in the church, it seems. That's Jesus' point. I came across this the other day. At the turn of the century, Blockbuster reigned supreme in the video rental industry. If your family craved a movie night, somebody likely had to drive to one of the blockbusters, right? 9,000 stores all across the country and stroll the rows of DVD line shelves and the tapes. Remember, you could even get a videotape from them. 
and they had to hand a, a, a membership card to a blue-clad employee who would give you your tape or your DVD. When Reed Hastings, the, fledgling, the founder of the fledgling startup Netflix, met with Blockbuster CEO John Antioco in 2000 to propose a partnership, do you realize he was laughed out of the office? Despite changing consumer preferences, here's what Blockbuster did. It doubled down on its store-first model by offering, get this, popcorn, books, toys, while Netflix experimented with a subscription model and no late fees. You remember Blockbuster, how you'd panic? Oh, wait a minute, we're overdue. Only 10 years later, Netflix became the largest source of streaming internet traffic in North America during peak hours with over 20 million subscribers, and it's way more than that now. And Blockbuster declared bankruptcy. Oh, they got creative. They climbed on the roof. They ripped it open. They guessed where Jesus was, and they got it big enough so that first a finger peered through, then five fingers, then whole hands, then the roof starts coming off, then heads peek in, then everybody's no longer paying attention to Jesus. They're looking up at the ceiling where these people are ripping off the roof so they can lower their friend. Why? Because they had a passion. They had a passion for bringing their friend to Jesus. Do we? Or do we let the first obstacle, the first turn down invitation, the first question that we can't answer, the first objection, do we just let it derail the whole thing? Lastly, you have to trust that once you get there, Jesus is going to do something. It's not all on you. You see, we see in the story that when these guys brought their friend to Jesus, when these people who were passionate about bringing their friend to Jesus, they expected him to do something. You see it right there in, Luke, in, excuse me, in, the, in the story. It's just like what we read in Psalm 37, verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he'll act. And so we see right there, and when Jesus, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven. You have to expect him to do something. William, Will Willimon, who Methodist bishop, currently professor of practicing Christian the practice of Christian ministry at Duke University, formerly the chaplain to Duke University Chapel, tells this story about an encounter he had with the father of a graduating student. The father called his office, Willimon's office, and exploded over the form, the phone. I hold you personally responsible for this, he yelled at Willimon. The father was angry because his graduate school-bound daughter had decided, in the father's words, to throw it all away and go and do mission work in Haiti with the Presbyterian Church. The father screamed, isn't that absurd? She has a bachelor degree of science from Duke University and she's going to go dig ditches in Haiti. I hold you responsible for this. Willimon, who's not really easily intimidated, he asked the father, why me? 
And the father replied, you ingratiated yourself to her and filled her with all this religion stuff. And Dr. Willimon was quick to reply, sir, sir, weren't you the one who had her baptized? Well, 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 yeah. The father stumbled. And, and didn't you take her to Sunday school when she was a little girl? Yeah, yeah, we took her to Sunday school. And, and didn't you allow your daughter to go on all those high school trips, those youth group trips to go skiing in Colorado when she was in high school? Yes, but what does that have to do with anything, replied the father, now becoming really agitated. Well, sir, Willimon concluded, you're the reason she's throwing it all away. You introduced her to Jesus, not me. But, the father said, all we wanted was a Presbyterian. <laughs> and Willimon replies, well, <laughs> sorry, sir. You messed up. You've gone and made a disciple. You see, you have to trust that once you get them there, Jesus is going to do something with them. And Jesus saw their faith, and the kingdom broke open. Forgiveness and healing and the challenge of the hypocrites and the sending forth for more ministry. Let me close with just a story. It was reported way back in 1985 that there was a celebration in a New Orleans municipal pool. All the major newspapers carried this story because of the tragedy. The party around the pool was held to celebrate the first summer in memory without a drowning at any New Orleans city pool. In honor of the occasion, 200 people gathered, including 100 certified lifeguards. At the par as the party was breaking up and the four lifeguards on duty began to clear the pool, they found a fully dressed body in the deep end. They tried to revive a man named Jerome Moody, 31 years old, but it was too late. He had drowned, surrounded by more than a hundred lifeguards celebrating their successful season. Lord, save us if that's the picture of the church, of people coming in, drowning, and just wanting to have somebody passionate about bringing us to Jesus. Lord, save us from being people of God in neighborhoods where people are drowning. They're dying. For one of people being passionate about bringing people to Jesus. Are you passionate about bringing people to Jesus? Like these four friends. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we see it. We see it in Jesus. He cared enough to act. And so he came and took on flesh and took our sin on himself on the cross. Thank you. Oh, 
And he saw it as a matter of life and death. And he was willing to challenge the conventions of men in order to bring people to the Father. And he trusted that if he brought people into your presence, you would act. Pour out this same passion upon us, Lord. Pour out this passion for bringing people to you. We pray this and everything in Jesus' name. Amen.